0: Hello, listeners. It is I, your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith, and welcome to Context Clues, where we give you relevant sections from old episodes that will hopefully make our next three-part series a little bit richer. Yeah, I said it. Our very first three-part episode In American Hysteria History, and let me tell you, it's a ride that hits on so many of our most classic and beloved concepts. You know, satanic cults, the Illuminati, the gay agenda, and that's just the beginning. Now, I am asking you all for a favor here, to listen to all Three parts. On one hand, for the good of our show, because I would love to expand what we do here and give you more in-depth reporting on topics like this. And on the other hand, because this is the very stuff American Hysteria is made of. It's lifeblood, it's backbone, it's heart and mortal soul. I promise to give you a hysterical experience in both meanings of the word. If you have never heard of the little evangelical cartoon booklets called Chick Tracts named after their creator Jack Chick that doesn't mean that you don't have some memory deep in your consciousness of finding one of these little black and white comic pamphlets, smaller than a dollar bill, left sitting on a park bench or at a phone booth, or even tragically given to you or your kids in replacement of candy during a night of trick-or-treating. Even if you have somehow avoided these freaky fundamentalist cartoons all together, I promise that you have experienced some of their effects. Each Chick tract, published anywhere between the 1960s and the present day, contains a story around 30 pages long, complete with melodramatic, brutal drawings that bellow out the spiritually lethal dangers of things like homosexuality, baby-slash-puppy-slash-kitten-sacrificing hippies, the Vatican, Jesuits, satanic witches, Halloween, rock and roll music, Dungeons and Dragons, Islam, Judaism, Eastern religion, astrology, drugs, Freemasons, and the Illuminati among many other temptations that can lead you, dear reader, to eternal torture in hell. And that's the point, to freak you out so much that you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and personal Savior right there on the spot, wherever you found that randomly placed chick track left by someone you'll never meet, for a sinner just like you to find. In a way, our show owes author Jack Chick a deep debt of gratitude for being a hidden architect of the biggest moral panics we never seem to outgrow as Americans. Almost a billion of his religious tracts have been printed and sent all over the world, making him one of the most widely read theologians of all time and the most widely read indie comic artist in history. You do not want to miss our series that covers not only his life and work, but also the experts he used as proof for the true story comics he drew. A former Druid high priest in the Illuminati, a Jesuit Catholic priest trained to infiltrate and destroy Protestant churches, and Two women who claimed that they'd been locked in a lifelong battle with murderous, satanic witches. The sections we're going to listen to today all come from our first season, So expect a Chelsea who talked too fast and thought they needed to sound far more professional than your current host, the mildly intoxicated adult member of Are You Afraid of the Dark's Midnight Society, I seem to have let myself become. Our first section comes from our episode called The Illuminati. Two decades before televangelists like Pat Robertson of the 700 Club repackaged the Illuminati conspiracy theory in the 1990s for a less anti-Semitic audience, Jack Chick was working with a man who claimed to be a Druid high priest who was once a high-ranking member of this shadowy group. He was a man who provided Jack Chick with all kinds of stories from his past and intel about who these secret puppet masters were, from celebrities to politicians to rock stars. Stories from before he was saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, of course." So here's a background on where the original story of this shadow group came from and how it was repackaged in the decades leading up to when Jack would meet his buddy, the Druid High Priest, dead set on a certain banking family being the leader of it all. So please enjoy this section from the Illuminati. On May 1, 1776, a Bavarian law professor named Adam Weishaupt formed a group called the Order of Illuminists. At the time, he couldn't afford the membership fee to join the Freemasons, so Weishaupt hoped to create his own secular rationalist organization similar to the Freemasons with a goal of freeing all societies of the world from established religious and political authority. After gaining 2,500 members and lasting only 11 or 12 years, the organization was dissolved when secret societies were made illegal in Bavaria. And that might have been the end of it. But 20 years later, a Scottish physicist named John Robeson published Proofs of a Conspiracy Against All the Religions and Governments of Europe Carried On in the Secret Meetings of Freemasons, Illuminati, and Reading Societies, which spread rumors that the Order of Illuminists and the Freemasons were the puppet masters behind the French Revolution. Robeson wrote that the Illuminati were hell-bent on destroying religion, and that the members had done things like create a tea that caused abortions and could blind or kill when squirted in the face of an enemy. The rumors soon crossed the ocean, landing mainly on American religious pulpits, with the rationalist founding fathers becoming suspect for their participation in the Freemasons' secret societies. And the splinters the fears caused led to America's first official third party, the Anti-Masonic Party, as well as rumors lasting to this day that the Founding Fathers added secret symbols and messages in plain sight, like On Our Money. Then in 1921, two writers named Nesta Webster and Edith Starr Miller added a new deadly feature to the Illuminati lore. Both were serious fangirls of fascism, both very anti-Semitic, and together they helped popularize the 1901 Protocols of the Elders of Zion, a thoroughly debunked fabrication of the alleged minutes from a late 19th century meeting in which Jewish leaders of a powerful secret cabal plan their world domination through gaining control of the press and economy. That same year, researchers found that the book was made up of plagiarized statements from two different fictional sources, but then THE Henry Ford had 500,000 copies of The Protocols of the Elders of Zion printed and distributed throughout the U.S., along with a ton of other anti-Semitic works. Henry Ford was well-liked by Hitler, so much so that he was the only American name found in his memoir, Mein Kampf, and a life-sized framed portrait of Ford hung beside Hitler's desk. I really want to drive home how influential this forged text has truly been. Hitler read the Protocols in the 1920s and referred to it many times in his early speeches. Without the idea that came from the Protocols, the idea that Jews were controlling the world with evil intentions, the Nazis may have had a more difficult time turning them into their own folk devil, that is, their scapegoat, to justify the horrors they committed. Right after World War II, accusations were leveled against the Rothschild family, who had long been famous for being both rich and Jewish, that they successfully faked some or even all of the Holocaust in order to create a lasting sympathy toward Jewish people, making their eventual world domination that much easier. More after this. If you're like me, you've been shopping in the boys section for too long, and let's just say there is a limit to the quality you will find there. But just imagine upgrading your wardrobe with actual luxury essentials at unbeatable prices, like 50-80% to less than similar brands. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. I ordered my partner an oversized cable cardigan, and I got a Milano-stitched oversized shirt jacket. But then they were so cute and honestly nicer than anything I own, so now we are swapping them whenever I say so. So indulge in affordable luxury, go to quince.com hysteria for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns that's q u i n c e slash hysteria to get free shipping and 365 day returns quince.com slash hysteria The rumors are true. I do enjoy a feel-good meal I can slip into the microwave and watch it spin, especially when that meal is personalized and delivered right to my door. With Factor, there are a whopping 35 different pre-prepared, chef-crafted, and dietitian approved ready ready-to-eat meals of all kinds with the welcome addition of over 55 nutrition-packed add-ons. We're talking two-minute restaurant, quality meals as well as smoothies and snacks and so much more to enjoy at home or on the go. Baby, we've done the math. Factors Fast upscale ready-to-eat meals are less expensive than takeout and a whole lot faster when you are hungry right now. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing 6 to 18 meals per week. Plus, you can pause and reschedule your deliveries anytime. So head to factormeals.com/americanhysteria50 and use code AMERICANHYSTERIA50 to get 50 50% off. That's code American Hysteria 50 at Factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off. And now, back to the show. We just heard about the history of the Illuminati up until Chick Tracts began helping to repopularize the conspiracy theory for a brand new audience, fundamentalists who would soon use this shadow group to score converts to their churches and get eyes on their shows and books. In addition to the gift of the New World Order legend, A great debt is also owed to Jack Chick by all who have employed and still employ the use of satanic panic to achieve their public, political, religious, and financial goals. Because without Chick Tracts, It's honestly hard to know if the 1980s and 90s pop culture hysterias around demonic influence would have played out quite the same way. Because Jack Chick and his cohorts were some of the earliest adopters of sensational stories of satanic popular culture of the demons behind things like Dungeons & Dragons and rock music backmasking, of hypnotic TV shows that inspired real-life occultism, and they were some of the first to spread modern tales of human-sacrificing cults publishing sensational memoirs about ritual abuse and demonic possession. And Chick Publications did most all of it with their dramatically grim, cartoonishly brutal, campy little stapled together packets that still circulate today, saving some souls, maybe, but also providing collectors with tiny morality plays that are unintentionally hilarious, if not incredibly offensive. So now please enjoy a section from one of our classic episodes satanic panic part one that will give us a background on the hysteria america was going through from the late 70s to the 1990s and of course into this very day here it is
1: In a scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird religious rite, five persons, including actress Sharon Tate, were found dead at the home of Miss Tate and her husband, screen director Roman Poljanski.
0: Often considered the death knell of the love generation, Charles Manson and his band of flower-crowned spree murderers seemed to prove what American parents already believed. The hippies, with their free love and drug use, their strange ungodly philosophies, were actually in league with something much darker. Assumptions that the Manson family were a satanic cult were presented early on, and then prosecuting attorney Vincent Bugliosi spun a whopper of a story about cultic mind control, the race war Manson wanted to invoke with ritual murders, and the hidden messages he believed to be in Beatles songs. The feeling began permeating the country that satanist cult leaders like Charles Manson were more common than could be imagined, and that these bearded pied pipers were leading teenage girls and boys out of their hometowns onto sex-and-drug-fueled communes and into unspeakable occult criminal activity. Just a year before the Manson murders, Rosemary's Baby had been released, a horror film about a young woman's disturbing run-in with a cult of devil-worshippers run by her landlords who secretly impregnate her with a child of Satan. It was directed by Roman Polanski, who at the time was married to actress Sharon Tate, the most famous victim of the Manson family who was stabbed brutally while pregnant with Polanski's baby that very next year. The story was an eerie coincidence that some believed was not a coincidence at all, but some kind of proof of the dangers of occult filmmaking. Four years later, The Exorcist, a film about the demonic possession of a young girl and a priest's attempt at helping her and her family, terrified America, producing true fits of fainting and vomiting. I fainted like 10 minutes after the first beginning of the movie. I passed out in in about the first half hour, yeah. Oh. Oh, God, I can't believe it. I'm just nervous. Famous scenes include the young girl puking violently, her head turning all the way around, and of course, most shocking of all to delicate sensibilities, violently masturbating with a cross while spitting out graphic blasphemies. Rumors soon spread about the film's very own demonic curse. During a screening in Rome, a storm surged around the theater as the audience filed inside. Shortly after, a giant 400-year-old cross on top of a nearby church was struck by lightning, causing it to fall dramatically into the plaza below. An extra in the film, Paul Bateson, would go on to become a serial killer, murdering six men. Mysterious deaths seemed associated with the cast. Objects would move on their own. Phones would fall off the hook. Late in the filming, The Exorcist hired a real exorcist to cleanse the studio. All these unexplained events led credence to the idea that satanic films could actually hold real satanic power... The supernatural seemed to be showing itself in a pop culture that had rejected traditional values, and the growing superstitions of a nervous nation allowed fertile ground for religious hucksters to make some serious money.
1: I got saved in 1966. I have a three-inch scar on my wrist where my friends used to cut my arm and bleed my blood into a cup and mix it with wine and urine and drink it for communion to Satan. I was involved as deeply as you can get.
0: 70s Christian comedian Mike Warnke looked a little more flamboyantly rock and roll than his Christian contemporaries, sporting a single dangly earring and long curly hair. After sharing his testimony on stage, he published his memoir, The Satan Seller, in 1973, in which he goes from orphaned teenage drug addict to satanic high priest to evangelical convert this book has it all. Child sacrifices, orgies, kidnapping, ritual murder, and magic spells. He even dedicates a few pages to the fourth level of working professional Satanists. That's right, the Illuminati. Thanks, Mike. And with that, the idea that there was a secret network of underground Satanists became a best-selling Christian sensation, and Mike, the trusted authority, So, if this book is indeed the truth, Mike Wernke publicly admitted to assisting in several murders, kidnappings, drug trafficking, and brutal sexual assaults, including one where he commands his friends to kidnap a woman and then stomp on her hands until she agrees to have sex with the members of his coven. But of course, at the end of the book, he is born again and through the Holy Spirit is forgiven for all his crimes. The woman I just mentioned, well, she runs up to Mike in the street to tell him how much she loves him and forgives him because she herself has been born again. Mike then goes on to marry his childhood sweetheart, Sue, but then tries to strangle her to death in the night. And in one dramatic scene, Sue finally casts away the demons forever. All is forgiven with no legal ramifications, no rehabs, no therapy, no discernible change except for, of course, the Holy Spirit. Then the couple, wholly healed and hella holy and ready to influence the masses, start their own popular ministry to spread these very socially responsible and emotionally healthy messages. The Satan seller was not fully debunked until 1991, when it was revealed through an expose in the Christian magazine Cornerstone that Mike's family and friends stated on record that during the time of the alleged satanic cult activity, Mike was a clean-cut young Christian, one who only hung out with other Christian students. At the time, he claimed to have bleach-blonde hair and six-inch black fingernails. At the time, he was allegedly drinking blood and eating pinky fingers. He was actually spending his time bowling, playing croquet, and eating ice cream sundaes down at the local soda fountain. But before the official debunking, Mike would appear as an expert not only on fundamentalist programs, but also on the most mainstream TV talk shows that existed, including Oprah, Larry King, and 2020, which all treated his outrageous story as indisputable fact. His ministry was forced to close its doors only 100 days after the expose came out, and it was found that he was taking an $800,000 salary while claiming the ministry desperately needed more donations. Mike still swears that much of what he wrote was the truth, and the effect the book had essentially made that so anyway, at least in the minds of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, who connected the rock and roll image of Mike's past satanic self with a rising counterculture even scarier than the one that came before. In the early 1970s, rock and roll, which had long been associated with sexual deviancy, drugs, and the occult, leaned in hard into the rumors of their satanic ties. The heavy metal pioneers Black Sabbath began as a group called the Polka-Tolk Blues Band. But one day, as they were searching for a new name, they saw the title of a 1963 horror film on a movie theater's marquee. They chatted about how funny it was that people paid to see horror movies, that they paid to be scared, and that maybe they could bring horror into popular music. Guitarist Tony Iommi came to the other band members, including singer Ozzy Osbourne, with an unorthodox new idea to match their horror persona. Instead of the standard musical sequence used in blues music, he showed the group a different sequence, known throughout Catholic history as the Devil's Tritone, famous for the rumors of its banning by the church. It sounded dissonant, off, almost demonic, and it worked. The New Counterculture the new adversary was even scarier than the hippies because they were bold and in your face about their allegiance to the Prince of Darkness. A movement was sparked, one covered in leather and giant hair, tattoos and chains, tight pants and inverted crosses, all built on creating an opposite, an adversary to the Christian majority. By the early 80s, fundamentalist preachers and televangelists all over the country were playing rock and heavy metal songs backwards, studying their strange sounds like righteous detectives. They focused, most famously, on Led Zeppelin's popular hit, Stairway to Heaven. A televangelist named Paul Crouch claimed that the secret satanic messages he could hear proved that the band was in cahoots with the devil and was subconsciously persuading young people to follow the path of the occult.
1: All right, we'll go on. You'll you'll hear, here's to my sweet Satan, and then you'll hear there's power in Satan. Well, let's just, let's just go on.
0: Okay, I can hear it, and it's pretty creepy, and maybe that's why this conspiracy didn't just stay in evangelical and fundamentalist circles. In fact, the state legislator of California actually looked into the rumors just in case there might be some truth to them. Both sides of the political spectrum were on alert. Come 1985, Tipper Gore, wife of then Democratic Senator Al Gore and several other wives of senators, created the Parents Music Resource Center and named their famous Filthy 15, which included, among other acts like Madonna and Prince, many of the famous heavy metal bands of the time, like Judas Priest, Motley Crue, ACDC, Venom, and Merciful Fate. The Parents Music Resource Center demanded content-based ratings for songs, X for profane or sexually explicit lyrics, D slash A for lyrics about drugs and alcohol, V for violent content, and O for occult references. Of course, these labels made parents feel a little more in control of their kids, but it only made teens covet the forbidden records even more. And alongside teenage misfits love of heavy metal, there was another possibly satanic pastime rising in popularity for others that didn't quite fit in.
1: Well, I know that when uh, I did my message, and this has happened, I have letter after letter where people took the pieces. Now, there's sixes involved in the pieces of the game, but they yeah. take the pieces of the game. They would throw them in the incinerator or the fireplace and screams would come out because there seemed to be some kind of spiritual forces inhabiting those pieces.
0: Dungeons & Dragons was the first true tabletop role-playing game, allowing players to create their own fantasy personas and situations, to go on different adventures based on the roll of a dice. It's like a never-ending choose-your-own-adventure in the form of a board game with the general goal of growing more powerful, but also of simply coming up with a good story. D&D's satanic ties first came under scrutiny in 1979 when 16-year-old computer science prodigy James Dallas Egbert III went missing from his Michigan State dorm room. When the police search fell short, his family hired private investigator William Deere. After studying James's suicide note and a corkboard of strange clues found in his dorm room, William Deere made the claim that James may have been attempting to play a real-life version of D&D in the steam tunnels under the school and was killed down there by accident. And James's parents accepted the theory publicly, which gave rise to new fundamentalist theories, the most popular being that D&D's Dungeon Master Guide contained instructions for carrying out a ritual sacrifice to Satan and that the bright young James had fallen prey. When he was found alive several weeks later, it turned out that James had indeed spent time in the steam tunnels under the school, but it had nothing to do with D&D. He had gone down there with the purpose of ending his life by overdosing on sleeping pills. When he awoke after 24 hours, disoriented but still alive, he hid out at an older man's house in New Orleans for the remainder of the month he was missing. Soon, William Deere would get to know the boy he had been searching for personally, as he worked on a book about the case, trying to dispel some of the satanic rumors he had accidentally started. It turned out that James had been suffering from serious depression and drug abuse, buckling under academic pressure from his parents, as well as serious loneliness. James was also very likely gay, and William Deere believed his parents cleaved so desperately to the D&D narrative so that they could avoid the topic of his sexuality being leaked to the media. And then two years later, another player, one named Irving Lee Pulling, shot himself in the chest. Understandably devastated and looking to find something to blame for the horrible tragedy, Irving's mother, Patricia Pulling, made the claim that Irving's principal cursed her son using D&D and that countless other teen suicides could be linked to the game. A devout Christian already aware of D&D's demonic reputation, Patricia found it bad, Bothered about Dungeons and Dragons. Bad defined d and this way. A fantasy role-playing game which uses demonology, witchcraft, voodoo, murder, rape, blasphemy, suicide, assassination, insanity, sex perversion, homosexuality, prostitution, satanic-type rituals, gambling, barbarism, cannibalism, sadism, desecration, demon summoning, necromantics, divination, and many other teachings. Like televangelists, Patricia believed that this role-playing game was just a cover, and what D&D really contained were covert instructions for rituals in which susceptible teens would be hypnotized into out-of-control, sodomy-filled sex parties presided over by Satan himself. And if the devil could use a board game to possess teens, couldn't he do similar things to kids? That was the question on one man's mind, while deep into a 14-day fast that was requested directly by Jesus Christ himself, devout Christian Phil Phillips wandered aimlessly into an early 80s toy store and was struck by a frightening image, a plastic figurine holding an occult symbol in its hand. Pale-faced, he approached the register, purchased the toy, and then staggered out in what I can only imagine was a hunger-induced stupor, clutching the action figure in his clammy palm, unsure of why he had bought it. By his own account, he tossed the toy in his back seat and all but forgot about it, until God spoke to him a few days later, telling him about how the toy industry controls the youth with occult magic. This sparked Phil to undertake an intensive investigation into popular toys and the Saturday morning cartoons that were used to sell them, shows like He-Man and Thundercats, Care Bears and Rainbow Bright. Here's a mashup of Phil talking to Fundamentalist talk show host Gary Greenwald in 1984.
1: A little boy was seen out in the parking lot with He-Man in his hand, running around in circles saying, He-Man has more power than Jesus. The Care Bears use the Care Bear Stare, which is a power beam coming from the center of their stomach. What I'm seeing in Care Bears is almost like they're setting up their own religion. This is Tila. They call her the warrior goddess, and this young lady is involved in witchcraft, and you'll notice that she's a very voluptuous-looking thing, and they wear very tightly clad clothes and and, sometimes even negligee. Skeletor, the master of the universe. But there are some things about Smurfs that we need to look at. You know what happens to you when you die? You turn blue and your lips turn black. Again, Rainbow Bright is a very humanistic type toy. It displays many humanistic and new age symbols within it. It's a half man, half horse. He had horns coming out the side of his head, who kidnapped three of the ponies, and he's going to transform them to pull his chariot of darkness.
0: More after this. Crack that fire down,
1: 19. Copy, Captain. Let's move.
0: And now, back to the show. Now that we've heard parts of the Illuminati and Satanic Panic episodes, what do you think comes next? What panic complements these two tall tales so well that they can be used to label an entire group of people as having an evil, nuclear family-annihilating, satanic agenda. I'm talking about me, a queer, with a hellish clipboard on fire, detailing the steps we must take to finally seize control of America and then the world. I'm talking about the gay agenda, And guess what? So was Jack Chick, among the many other agendas that all seem to lead back to the Catholics. But you'll have to listen to our upcoming series to know what that's all about. But something important to know about Chick tracts is that they are deeply paranoid to the point of parody, overblown to the point of being pure camp something we gays usually love. Included in this paranoia is the sense that the gays and all the other various enemies of Jack's religious philosophy are menacingly evil, cruelly coordinated, moving through the world persecuting the loving Christians who are just trying to prevent them from a lifetime in hell. And how do these ungrateful sinners respond? Well, in Jack's world, they poison the blood supply with AIDS, of course. He believes that gay people are organizing the mass conversion of children and adults through pressure campaigns against politicians and public schools, controlling the media to make gay seem okay. Now, this might sound a little familiar to what we are going through right now in America. It's a tale as old as time. And Jack had a large hand in popularizing the panic and anger around the gay agenda. Here it goes.
1: Make no mistake. These deviants seek no less than total control and influence in society, politics, our schools, and in our exercise of free speech and religious freedom. If we do not act now, homosexuals will own America.
0: That was Jerry Falwell again. If you remember our episode on the Illuminati, some of this stuff is going to sound suspiciously familiar. The gay agenda conspiracy theory uses a similar template, flipping the script so that the oppressed become the oppressors. A lot of this got started back in 1948 when psychologist Alfred Kinsey published the results of his research into homosexual behavior which said that one in ten people were gay and that gay men did not have to appear effeminate and gay women did not have to appear masculine. In fact, more often than not, they didn't, meaning that there was no way to outwardly tell the difference. The common conception of homosexuality at the time was that it was essentially contagious and one could be influenced into the lifestyle and, on the flip side, influenced out of it. In 1952, scientists bolstered these religious fears when psychologists named homosexuality a pathology and it was listed under the banner of sociopathic personality deviation. Though an improvement to it being seen as a criminal offense, the mental illness angle is where we see conversion therapies begin, with the intent of converting homosexuals back to heterosexuality, with the most extreme examples being neurologist Walter Freeman, who used ice-pick lobotomies to cure almost 1,500 homosexuals, and most of those he operated on, with no formal training by the way, were left severely disabled for the rest of their lives. Other forms of conversion therapy last to this day and have included forced hospitalizations and electroshock therapy. This idea that gay people were more common and more hidden than the nation previously knew led to this feeling that homosexuals could be this kind of invisible agent. Suddenly, everyone was a suspect and everyone was vulnerable. In the 1950s, the TV dinner buttoned-up, family-obsessed American Pleasantville was shot through with a chilling Cold War paranoia, the threat of the Soviet Union and its spies. At the beginning of the decade, Senator Joseph McCarthy started what is now called the Red Scare, leading a witch hunt for a supposed spy ring of communists in positions of influence, as well as whoever fit his own agenda, like black civil rights leaders, left-wing protesters, university professors, and Hollywood actors. McCarthy also led another purge, a lesser-known but even more devastating panic called the Lavender Scare, in which the FBI fired 425 suspected gay men and women from U.S. government employment. They did this, they said, because these, quote, sexual perverts were susceptible to blackmail by the communists. McCarthy also intimidated those who spoke out against him by threatening to out them as homosexuals, and often said explicitly to reporters, If you want to be against McCarthy, boys, you gotta be either a communist or a cocksucker. From here, this fear of the homosexual shifted into something more actively sinister, when, yet again, conservatives didn't get the gay joke. Anti-gay groups freaked out over the discovery of a collective of artists from the 1930s that called themselves the Homintern, a joke name inspired by a communist term called the Comintern, an organization who wanted to spread communism to the West. The Homintern, however, was just a friendly gathering of queer artists and writers who had a pipe dream of living open lives and helping others to live them too. But to those embroiled in Cold War anxiety, the existence of a homintern signaled none other than, quote, an international homosexual conspiracy that mirrored the communist one with the single goal of destroying traditional American values. Three years after the Lavender Scare, President Eisenhower would sign an executive order which barred homosexuals from working for the federal government. Approximately 5,000 gay people were forcibly outed and fired from federal employment, including those in the military. In addition, many public school teachers lost their jobs and many were publicly outed. These actions certainly forced gay folks deeper into the closet, but nonetheless, they continued to find ways to find each other. Thank you all so much for tuning in to this Context Clues episode for our upcoming three-part series on Chick Tracts. I promise it will be full of all of these moral panics and many more, and you can expect florid descriptions of the ridiculous stories told by Jack's comics, as well as the larger-than-life experts he used to lend him an air of legitimacy." I'm hoping, too, that we can dive a little deeper into the life of the late Jack Chick to see what could have caused a young comic artist to take such a hard turn into the bigoted religious fanaticism that made him one of the most influential Christians that has ever lived. That's coming next This was American Hysteria. If you want to get ad-free early episodes of our show, as well as bonus content, you can become a patron at Patreon.com/ American Hysteria. You'll get access to Hysteria Home Companion, a second talk show podcast that producer Miranda and I make with stories from the cutting room floor of each topic. Most recently, I told Miranda all about the devious licks TikTok challenge and the potentially real conspiracy behind it all. You'll also be added to our close friend's Instagram, where you'll get to watch me slowly lose my mind while making each episode, as our dear patrons have been the last couple months, where I posted the most ridiculous chick-tracked cartoons I came across and provided my video commentary as well. That's patreon.com americanhysteria American We'd love to have you join our community, and we'd be honored if you would support our show. This episode was co-produced by Riley Swadelius smith and Miranda Zickler, and also co-produced and hosted by me, Chelsea Weber-Smith, obviously. That was a Love is Blind reference. <laughs> Thanks, as always, for listening, and I hope you have a great